I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in my room, room 1708, in Culbertson Hall at Moody Bible Institute, on the corner of Chicago and Wells. There's a light tap on the door, and Solomon walked in. He wanted to talk. Solomon and I had more than a few conversations in my time at Moody. He was known for being the person to bring up the tough conversations with you, to challenge the morality of any number of things that you were doing. Now, it was debatable on whether or not you and he agreed on whether or not your behavior actually was wrong. Um, He could confront you on anything from your sarcasm to your lack of gratitude about the food in the dining hall, which, for the record, was absolutely terrible, um, (laughs) to how you snuck in the dorms after curfew, which, for the record, I may or may not have done. This time, Solomon was following up on a conversation that I had dodged earlier in the week with him, a conversation that it developed out of comments that I made that he overheard about downloading music. It was the simplicity of Solomon's approach that was so difficult to resist. He asked me very plainly, how is it okay that you are just downloading albums without paying for them? He was genuinely curious. It was one of the things that made these regular conversations with Solomon so difficult He wouldn't belittle or talk down to you. He honestly wondered how I could do this thing and think it was all right. He assumed that I had thought about it, and there was just something he didn't get. And so he came to me saying, can you explain to me what's going on? Because uh, you're a nice guy, Andrew, so why are you doing this wrong thing? You wanted to be mad at Solomon, but he was just too nice. This sermon isn't about pirating music, although any number of my friends could tell you that they have heard that sermon from me before. What I would like to share with you this morning is what I think our texts show us this morning, and that's that there is a simplicity to wisdom. The world is not a simple place, and our lives and behaviors are anything but a collection of simple moral choices. We don't make decisions about what to do based on a dialogue with a shoulder angel and a shoulder demon. But I think this morning we learn that the root of all our moral problems is often a very simple issue. I didn't have a good answer for Solomon. I had previously put together a very complex argument about how music libraries were shared over college networks, and so I can listen to them anyways, and so downloading. You know, there was a very complex answer that I had already worked up in my mind, but at that moment, at the end of the day, I think I knew that this was, for me, a simple justification of doing what I wanted whenever I wanted. This is an unintended part of the curriculum at Bible schools, that we get the tools to interpret the text and understand what what the text means, and they also are used to justify any passion that beguiles the soul and make it look like a virtue. It's one of the handy skills that I can turn anything into a sermon or anything into my own justification. It's dangerous tools indeed. But let's look at the passage at Proverbs, or from Proverbs. As I have become accustomed to, I will dodge the difficult issue that I could preach this morning about looking at what makes a perfect wife. That's playing with homiletical fire as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) But this text is often interpreted about either a literal woman about, or about wisdom herself. But let's look at the kind of things that typify her. She's actively working. She does good, not harm. She is kind to the poor. She loves her children, and they love her. This picture of wisdom doesn't look like some sage sitting on the top of a mountain with poignant new insights that will fix any situation. It also, as a side note, does not look like our typical stereotype of what an ideal wife looks like. She's much more active and much more entrepreneurial than sometimes our picturesque 50s model of womanhood. This looks like an everyday, life-lived, salt-of-the-earth wisdom. It looks like doing what we know we ought to do. It looks like morality that we already understand. When you read Proverbs, you don't say, oh, idleness is bad? 
Well then, now I've learned so many new things. I'm so glad I understand the text better this morning. You look at Proverbs throughout the whole book and you think, oh yeah, that makes sense. I should have thought of that on my own. James talks about the meekness of wisdom. Jesus chastises his disciples for talking about who is the greatest right after he has just told them that he needs to be humiliated and die. Wisdom does not look proud and complex. When someone gives you a wise answer or a wise solution to your problem, it probably cuts to the root of your issue, and it probably breaks down the walls of whatever edifice of justification or complexity that you have constructed, and it probably reveals your inner motives. How does Jesus show us, show us what faith in following him looks like? He looks to children. Now, as we talked about in the last couple weeks in the wildly popular adult ed series on youth ministry, the ability to think in abstract ways is something that develops later in life. Children do not have the kind of formal operations, the kind of non-concrete intelligence that adults do. This isn't new information. Everyone's always known that children think like children and adults think like adults. Paul uses this logic. Children can't grasp the Trinity. Children can't properly wrestle with the tension between the sovereignty of God and our free will. And yet somehow the picture of true faith is someone who we probably imagine oversimplifies the world. The picture of faith, of life lived, of loving others and running to God, is someone who has none of the fancy logical processes that we enjoy as adults, or sometimes enjoy not using as adults. That depends on your personality. Now, before you give up all of our wonderful educational offerings at All Souls and commit yourself to an unexamined life of simplicity, hear this. <laughs> Learning more about God is crucial to our spiritual lives. Understanding God better, understanding the text better, these are central to growing up in Christ. The mind is part of our lives, and without engaging the mind and using our minds, we are not truly dedicating our whole selves to the cause of Christ. But the mind is only one part of our lives. In fact, the mind on its own is not sufficient to draw us closer to Christ. It is rare that you will find someone who has logic their way into the faith. It is rare that you'll find someone who has a true, robust spirituality who seems to only engage their mind. If your spiritual life involves your mind, you might as well just start becoming a Star Wars nerd. Now, this seems unrelated at first, but let me explain. I can, because of who I am, put together a systematic theology of the Force. I could spend time telling you all the things that you should do if you want to be a Jedi. Only a Sith deals in absolutes, clear your mind. In any case, we can have long debates about it. We can commit ourselves to various positions. We can read and reread the books and watch the movies and get new insights and publish new material. Be very excited when new encyclopedias come out. I can tell you why it's important that Han shot first, why we should consider the recent edits to the films as apocryphal, and why you should read Shadows of the Empire to really understand what happens in between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. If you didn't understand all of that, that's perfectly okay. Because the point is, I can do all of that with my mind but it doesn't truly reach us unless it has touched our hearts as well. If your faith is entirely a constructed systematic theology apart from a life lived, apart from a heart loved, then you are just playing fantasy. I could use Lord of the Rings illustrations. We could talk about Harry Potter. We could talk about any number of fantasy worlds that we can commit ourselves to and construct a whole intellectual life to and enjoy new insights and interesting debates. But if that's all we're doing, if that's all we're doing with our spiritual lives is thinking clever thoughts, we have abandoned most of ourselves. The mind by itself cannot be the only avenue we allow God to use to transform us into his likeness. We know this because all sorts of atrocities have been committed 
by those of us in the church who should have known better, but have spent too much time working out a robust theology to defend and to justify the things that we have wanted to do all along. To give a historical example, the debates over slavery in pre-Civil War America often took a turn towards Scripture, and the Southern arguments were often those who championed Scripture. The Southern army considered themselves the most Christian army in the history of the world. They thought they were sticking to Scripture. The Northern counterparts who abandoned biblical arguments, they were abandoning Scripture. It was the South who had it. I'm not interested in, in getting in a debate with Dan Claude about the South right now, but Mark Knoll does a great job of talking about this conflict in his short but brilliant book, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. You can spend a lot of time justifying what you want to do in Scripture, but it's your heart that will change things. It's that wisdom that gets down to your core, that affects the whole person, that is simple, that grows into a fruit of a full life. So how do we build a spirituality based on the whole person? When preparing any sort of lesson, as Moody has taught me, you want to have goals to reach three parts of the human, the mind, the heart, and the behaviors. You want to have a cognitive, an affective, and a behavioral lesson goal. We acknowledge that this when we cross ourselves with the gospel, that it would sanctify our minds, our mouths, or our actions, and our hearts. There are these parts to the human, and we want all of them to be affected by Christ. And yet, it's very hard to teach someone how to love. I can tell you how to think, and I can force you to behave in a certain way, but I cannot make you love God more. I can say things and tell you that this should affect your heart. How many sermons have we heard where there's this beautiful truth of God's love, and then there's this sort of pleading from the preacher, love God more because of this. And for many of us, there is a natural progression. When we understand God more, it leads to an affection. But I can't just tell you a truth and make you love God more. I can give you information, and I can force your behaviors but I can't just assume that I'll give you some facts and afterwards you're going to leave this place loving God a whole lot more. That's just going to be guilting you into feeling the right way. The simple change of our lives from self-centered to God-focused requires an initial orientation of the heart. That simple, plain compass heading will mean that God can direct the development of our theology. It can direct our actions. God can then be in control of our entire lives. And the heart and mind will help us bear the fruit of the kingdom. James says, what is it that causes the quarrels and fights? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Is it not the problem that our hearts are far from God? Deep at the center of our moral issues is our passions, which need to be turned towards God. And while I might be saying that this initial premise is simple, there is no simple way to plant it in our hearts, and I can't accomplish it this morning in my homily. Only God can change your heart, and only God can change mine. Only the love of our Savior can turn our hearts of stone towards him, and only the Holy Spirit can truly breathe new life into us. But I don't want to leave you this morning completely without a plan or attack. Uh, I'm far too systematic in my own thinking to allow that to happen. And so we turn to the psalm. How does the tree grow? It is planted by streams of living water. It is rooted next to God and his law. The meditation of the Psalms doesn't look like an analytical approach, although that may be part of it. Meditating on God's word. When you read Psalm 119, it looks like someone who just loves God's law, who spends time and time again meditating on it, spending time with it, enjoying it. That's the way that we love others, right? We don't just learn facts about them. We spend time with them. We spend time with no agenda at all. We spend time just being with them. That's how we build relationships and that's how we learn to love God and to love his law. There's no nice, easy way to do it. 
The Psalms don't talk about new insights. They talk about adherence and love of that law. And so the only recommendation I can give you this morning in order to get wisdom, in order to be wise and allow God to plant that wisdom in your heart, is to plant your life in the flowing water of Christ's love. Once it grows, feed it with knowledge and study and conversation. Feed it with behaviors. Feed it with lifestyles that match. Engage your mind and strive to act as you should, but be rooted in Christ. You can not read your Bible, not pray, not open your hearts in worship, and still have a complete theology and a well-constructed worldview about God and Christ. I know this because I have lived this way in my own life. But you will not be a growing rooted tree if you're not submitting yourself to God and devoting primacy in your life to him. The tree that grows is complex and beautiful, but the seed is simple. Be in the word, be in prayer. Take the Eucharist in faith. Reorient your life to be focused on God so that your heart is able to hear him. Build your affection for Christ through prayer and worship, and then build on that foundation with more knowledge, but be constantly checking your water source. Because you can uproot a tree and plant it somewhere else, and it'll still look like a tree, but it won't grow the right way. Jesus and James give us the model for a growing faith. Humility, submission, sacrifice. Come like a child to your Savior and learn at his feet in all humility. Don't lean on the strength of your mind, but allow your heart to be turned to him and let that be the beginning and foundation of your life in Christ. Then, allow God to build up your theology and your thoughts. Allow him to shape your life. Allow him to construct beautiful pictures of who he is through complex topics and through a robust understanding of all of scripture so that your whole life can be given in service to him. Amen.